Hey, welcome to the bonus episode uh, of Escape from Plan A for this week. Uh, we're going to cut a little bit midstream into a pretty long conversation that we had, which is why I'm kind of cutting midstream when we kind of get to the meat of the discussion uh, between myself, uh, Diana, and our friend David Knoll, who's the founder of AN Publishing. Uh, the discussion really is around um, the importance of having um, independent POC media and just kind of our thoughts around that. And uh, it's a pretty wide-ranging discussion. And just, you know, um, since we go cut midstream into it, I just kind of wanted to give a little bit uh, of context of what we're talking about here. I think it should be pretty self-explanatory, uh, but here it is. Escape from Plan A. It seems like what you're both saying is that there's a need for um, cultivating just our own subjectivity, no matter if we're a writer or if we uh, are starting platforms. And that's kind of going to be lacking if you're too audience-focused and you're too focused of your objectivity or you're like yourself or your platform as a product to be consumed. So there is like a kind of a shift in how people who write or people who own platforms, especially if they're people of color, need to think about themselves. And like that, to me, that's the thing that's missing in a lot of media is just that the lack of subjectivity, just like constantly chasing a white audience or even, you know, an Asian audience or a black audience. Like you, if you're too focused on what you should be saying, which is kind of what like um, the white journalist tradition and that kind of, that whole industry will want from a POC, right? They, they want the POC writer that they can manage better. That's why they always have to have a white manager or a co-owner or something like that, that Comcast was doing, is because they don't actually want subjectivity. They want POC objectivity that they can control. And the, the importance of the POC platform for media or for whatever, you know, even if it's, um, even if it's like cultural media, is that like personal touch, you know, that like, this is what you want as a creator and you're going to go out and create that because that's what's needed in the world. It's not what somebody is asking of you. It's not what somebody is demanding of you. Right. And I think that's just like a, that's just something that we need more of in general in the POC communities and um, having platforms that are managed by people with that kind of creative drive and that subjectivity is what's important, not necessarily the platforms themselves. Yeah, that's true. And then let me say this to, to you guys, because I think this would be interesting. I can tell you sometimes, you know, a lot of uh, most of the people, writers I've interviewed, they live all over the country. Right. So we've. We rarely have ever seen each other face-to-face, -face, right? Or even see what each other look like. So we just talk over the phone. And there have been times when I've interviewed uh, some, you know, somebody to be a writer and they were someone who was Caucasian. And 
if if I were to ask them to describe the platform, they would automatically somehow bring race into, like, say, a modern treatise or even a man of the hour platform, right? It would be usually a male, and they would just describe it as, as, as you know, he's probably catering to a white male or this such and such, and I guess they assumed that I was white, right? Right? And then I would have to, then I would just say, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I just, I'm just going to ask this question. So why do you, why did you think it was white? You know, I just want to, I'm just curious, you know. And then somewhere, oh, that's interesting. yeah. And then somewhere further down in the interview, I'll just casually drop that I'm African American. Right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to do it at that moment, but I'm just going to casually drop it somewhere else, right? Because I know they're going to be a little bit. Yep, you messed up, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> that assumption. But yeah, I mean, I completely. Um, I think I think it is very much important for us to to not only have that control over the platforms, but I'll give you an example. So Essence Magazine, which was 100% black owned, uh, was bought up for a good three or four, it's a good four or five years by uh, Time Inc., right? You know, which produces Time Magazine. Immediately when they bought uh, Essence Magazine. The while the editor in chief was still an African American woman, they the what they call the sort of uh, managing editor was a Caucasian guy, and this Caucasian guy was racist, and he ended up getting he ended up getting removed, not fired from from Time Warner, but uh, but 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 removed because of some of the statements that he was making on his Facebook page, uh, in in support of Donald Trump, right, and 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 statements about. African Americans. I'm thinking, well, why would you? First off, why would you have a white person be the managing, you know, the uh, the managing editor for a black woman's publication? And then, wouldn't you have checked out his social media to see the kind of things he says on there? Those two things. Now he wasn't fired, obviously. He was just moved to some other space. And then they also uh, would hire a a Australian woman who would become the first white woman to ever be like what they call fashion and beauty editor for Essence magazine. And she ended up getting fired because she wrote in she wrote in her social media postings. This is on a Facebook page that she didn't, uh, you know, she thought that she thought that she basically compared black women and the models that she had to work with in her, in, in her role as monkeys, right? She compared them to apes. So she was doing that. Uh, she was fired. Essentially, about a, a, a couple of years later, the magazine was then uh, purchased purchased by uh, someone who is African-American to buy the magazine and get it back into the community. But during that time period that it was under Time, Inc., you have, you know, white executives at Time, Inc. doing exactly what Tina is saying, right? They're looking at profit margins. They're deciding who's going to be undercover based on the money, based on what can get advertisement. All of the African-American women in, in circulation, uh, at least at the time, and still somewhere around 7 million circulation, uh, circulation, all of those women with the magazine was passed down to from one generation to the other since its uh, foundation in the, in, 19, in the 1970s. Everything, everything that they came to love about it because it represented them, it represented their interests, it represented the community, right? It was, you know, it, they didn't care, you know, they bought that magazine, they didn't care about the, you know, the profit, right, or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, they liked the magazine and wish it got more advertising than it did, but they bought that magazine or they subscribed to it and got it on a monthly basis. All of that was being thrown away to kind of make it a, 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 a black version of Vogue, right? You know, you know, to, to, to go after, to go after just, you know, uh, let's put somebody undercover that, Normally speaking, the magazine wouldn't put undercover, uh, uh, and 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 sometimes putting people undercover who may be quote unquote of African descent, but they don't even identify themselves as black, right? 
you know, but but they'll take the cover because 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 they're getting an opportunity to get a little interview in the cover, and so that really you know brought down the legacy of that magazine, and people were very happy once it was sold off and it was actually brought back into uh, you know African American hands, so that the magazine could go back to uh, and it, it it never fully recovered. I mean, it's still much better. It's still much better than it was then, but it never fully recovered from what happened when uh, when Time Inc. purchased the magazine. So that's just a, a grand example of what it means uh, to have uh, a people of color uh, uh, um, controlling uh, the narrative and the voice. And uh, even as Teen says, you know, being able to you know create a platform for those people who want to produce content. That's ambitious, man. You got ambitions. I, <laughs> I um. Yeah, I mean, just just the very notion of assets and magazines and brand names and investors and board control and editorial boards and all that just makes me makes my head spin. Um, Because at the end of the day, I mean, I think, you know, you're faced with people who just have a thing to say and not not everyone, you know, uh, it's just a lot. It's just a lot of. it's it's a lot to have to accomplish in order to facilitate this notion of people should be able to say what they want to say, you know, and um, maybe we do need the, uh, Byr- you know, the Byron Allens of the world and the, um, the, 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 all the Jeff Yangs and all these media um, maven types that, that have the ambition to go out and, um, you know, take over large, large scale platforms. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I don't think what, I think the, I think the thing is that people are really conditioned to be consumers and that's a problem. You know, like people, someone was tweeting about this today, a friend of mine, about how, in modern society, especially like in America, you know, we've really s- separated out the act of consumption from the act of production. And and he was tweeting about these pears. <laughs> there was a picture of these uh, pears, like kind of in a, like a like a fruit cup pack, you know, like it comes pre-packed and it said printed on it. It said. The pears are from Argentina, like in like the little computer dot matrix that it prints on the plastic, you know, like the expiration date. It said, pears are from Argentina, but these were packed in Thailand. <laughs> they had a picture of these pears, of a, how far it would t- take these pears that had travel to get to back to the United States or to the United States. It had to go from Argentina to Thailand, back to the United States. And then someone... Uh, who had saw this picture said, you know, the fucked up thing is, and he's like, I'm from Argentina is we buy those pairs from the United States. So these pairs would go from the U S to Argentina, to Thailand, back to the United States, showing that the, the point of this being how absurd, you know, a lot of the commerce is out there that something that is grown next to you will have to travel around the world two times before it comes back to you as something packaged and edible and it's a pear. You can yeah, eat my it right friend, up the tree. He's from Idaho and they make a lot of potatoes, right? And he says that people in Idaho don't even 
eat Idaho potatoes because those get shipped out to the rest of the world. They get their potatoes from Montana because it's cheaper. Like they right, have right, shitty right. Montana potatoes. Who wants those Montana? Montana potatoes are terrible. And I think you, you know. And I think no, you can't. Yeah. Once I'm we apply the, the the this idea of consumption of media as a concept, even that we consume the media the same way I consume a pair, you know, like as if, you know, as if it was a, you know, a scarce commodity that we could run out of, you know, um, just interaction with other people, you know, talking, uh, communicating that we're consumers of that. Um, you know, I think when people say we need to challenge existing media structures, I think that we got to go all the way down to those notions of are we consumers or is this really about evolving into a state where we don't have this notion of media anymore? And what we really have uh, are people talking to other people and people building social connections, you know? And I think the... Uh, you know, the imposition of business and business models and and media uh, media platforms, so to speak, I don't think it's not necessary, but I think that those have, for me, always been impediments. And the faster we can do away with those notions and just get back to the most basic thing that we're all after, which is I want to I want to say something about this and I want other people to hear what I have to say to the extent that I think that it would be helpful to them. Well, I think in Asian American media and communities, you know, there's like, we're good with managing portfolios and numbers and projections and shit like that. But what we lack is the, the voice to just be able to say anything for ourselves and feel okay with that. And so I think that, you know, that's the difference maybe in uh, different POC communities. But like, I I see all of these Asian media platforms as just either, you know, very, very shallow, um, you know, like media stuff, films, boba, <laughs> like popcorn chicken shit, or it is just... Um, yeah, or it's just like clickbait. It's like this horrifying these horrifying images of older Chinese people getting beaten up or just like super sensationalist um uh like very very See, see what very, this white guy did yeah. in Asia. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like see, yeah. Yeah, it's um see what I don't this, know, see, see, see what this Lou said about Asian people. Yeah, <laughs> you know? stuff like yeah. that. And yeah. so there's just there's no middle ground. There's no, uh, like what you said, teen, um, there's no sense that they're real people talking at all, much less to each other. It just seems like a very fragmented or like at least, uh, dehumanized, um, these, like the, the platforms that we have in our communities. I agree with you. I think, I think that, you know, what, what I've noticed is that, uh, this is certainly not, in my opinion, for lack of Asian American people as a people, 
uh, to have things that they want to say and to say them and for us to want to go and search for people who are saying the things that we want to hear, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I want to hear this person talk about this topic. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm searching out knowledge from people or whatever. But I think what what has happened, and I've noticed this, is there's always arises a set of opportunistic people who become moderators and platform managers who will then try and create the sandbox and manage the sandbox in which those discussions take place. And this has happened over and over on social media. And I think what happens is you'll see that, you know, you get these people who become moderators and their job is to control or to condition the turn, you know, what's said, they'll try to manage, you know, and I'm not saying they're bad people, but I'm saying that they become very influential in the sense that they're not really saying anything, but their job is to go and manage what's being said and how it's being said. And eventually those kinds of people become media managers and stuff. And, and you'll see with Asian Americans, I think it's very rudimentary, of course. It's all starting from very, very rudimentary elements, but you'll see something like subtle Asian traits uh, expand into this network of groups and stuff and they'll merch it out. And they'll start to impose rules in order to keep it growing, in order to maximize its reach. And you start seeing how, like, the same ideas about product and catering to an audience, to grow an audience, etc., takes precedence. Uh, And the people with the most influence in that space don't necessarily have anything to say. They don't really care. All, All they really care about is growing the space. Uh, making sure the space is vibrant, that there's engagement, that you know there's all this stuff. Again, not ne- not. I'm not saying this is bad. I'm just saying that the the people who end up most influential are those without anything to say. Their their job is to um, grow. Their job is to. Well, I target. mean, is their that job is bad. To- I think that mm-hmm. is bad. I think that is bad. If like well, those yes. are the only like uh, platforms that we have, or the the ones that are that big. Because it suppresses real dialogue and it suppresses um, that, like, h- like the human subjectivity of most people who are engaged in that. Like, it's not vibrant; it's insipid and bland. But there's a lot of engagement. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot and of reach. It trains and-, and it trains the entire community to be at that level. And yeah. like, I think True. that that defeats the whole point of having that platform. Yeah, they they were I know with the subtle groups like they were pretty, you know, it got so big that they became like a material part of Facebook's um Facebook groups business. Uh and so they had a sort of special status with Facebook groups and I think there was a remember they got shut down like subtle Asian dating or something like one right. of the big groups got shut down and it it they I know they worked with Facebook to get it back up and try to figure out what happened and all this stuff but it was just sort of like you can see how these platforms become enmeshed with business and it just becomes, to me, I just lose interest. I'm like, uh, what's the point of this? And, you know, at, at, uh, you know, I have, I will say this, that I saw today that Deadspin, y'all are familiar with Deadspin, sort of like a uh, sports kind of, it's, it's a little bit bro-y, you know, it's like a kind of bro kind of platform. 
I think all the employees, I mean, they don't have many, but like eight, 20 people or something like left and started their own thing. And it was, you know what it was? <laughs> it was a podcast centered website. You know? <laughs> I love it. A, a podcast at the heart of a website, right? And they were going to hope to bring subscribers into the podcast and advert. It was centered around a podcast with a website around it. Wow. And I've started noticing that this is kind of the way to go. Like with a lot of these, you know, they're an employee-owned group now, right? They want to do something new because um, because Deadspin got gutted. And I started noticing that you know, sort of like the Patreon template, which is what we are. Uh, is really sort of starting to take hold. I think we're seeing these micro platforms like ours centered around podcasts, which are much more personal in nature where the people who create the platform are heard directly and kind of have to have something to say. You know what I mean? Like you can't be a passive manager of a platform. Like you've got to have something to say constantly and uh, have a, have a purpose followed with a website a landing page or something like that i've noticed that that's a model that like our friends over who started um resistance nwa recently andre demison and uh adam hudson and others who have been on the podcast and um a bunch of other people that have been associated with them also did sort of the patreon template of having a podcast at center so the people behind the platform are not hidden right they're not like hidden pulling strings to manage this platform and whatever but actually are front and center uh and have to justify the existence of the platform in the first place um and that it's a much more consensual model where it's like you know people are sort of like pledging cash totally by of their own free will (laughs) I still don't understand it, though. I do subscribe to other other people's Patreon, so I guess I, I it's not totally um, alien to me. But yeah, I think that there is a something to that template that does work. Part of it might be the the uh, the what do you call it? The spread of what we call parasocial relationships, the, the, the way that people want to feel connected to actual people on the internet and not just you know, read uh, large scale news stories or watch, uh, you know, lo- uh, large scale um, video content, but be part of a smaller network of people that they f- might actually feel they know. Um, coupled with uh, the rise of, uh, you know, sort of like a Patreon economy where it's like, I like it so much, I'm just going to throw money at it versus, you know what I mean? Uh, versus guilting people into supporting stuff like, oh, if you don't give money to NPR, we're going to go under next year. Which they're not, right? Which they're not. And you're right about that. I mean, I look at, I look at like, uh, you know, the Patreon, you know, and what it's done for, you know, uh, people who are producing content and being able to really connect with the, with the people who like the kinds of content, uh, seeking the kind of voices that of different people, particularly among people of color, I found this as a very useful tool because what we all have to remember is that, you know, whether or not what, whether or not you, you, you think of like uh, Plan A like this or whether I think of AM Publishing like this, we are in some way in competition with the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and they know it. 
you know, and I mean all of us, all of us out there doing yeah, this. There's only stuff. so many media dollars that you know people are chasing after. Chasing, yeah, you know, we're in competition with them, and they understand that, particularly when it comes to a more millennial and Gen Z audience, they're losing out because, you know, more people would rather hear what uh, Joe Rogan has to say, right? Then, then you know, and who he has on the guest, and who's on the who's on the Sunday, who's on the cable news program. That's that's a good point. A uh, teen, um, you know, remember Kate's article, Kate and Kevin's article. Mm-hmm. So apparently, Which, uh, uh-huh. this guy at the New York Times was pissed that they wrote that because he's also doing of investigative reporting on uh, that guy. Uh, but that guy already lost. Dick already lost I, them. Yeah, I know, I know, but like, yeah. too late. Like buddy. he was pissed. He was pissed about that. And I was like, really? Like you think we're competing with you guys? Like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, yeah. You salty ass narcissist. So if they see a different voice out there, like you know, and 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 you can always understand that there are people that are looking at your platform and other people's platforms and seeing what they're doing. And these are I call it like the you know the spies on the internet, you know, from the bigger media organizations, and then they're trying. To say well maybe we need to start doing that right right they you may not look at you may look at what you do in a particular way but they see it in another way and they think oh this is some this is some competition maybe if we incorporate a little bit of what they're doing on that plan a here you know into the new york times or the you know or, or into the washington post or, or any other platform they think well you know maybe if we do that that'll that's going to do something it's going to bring us some more clicks it's going to gain us an audience and as you can see these things just don't really work out that well for them, right? We, 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 uh, I may want to even challenge the notion of platform in the sense that, like, platform gives me this idea that mm-hmm. we're like a music club or, <laughs> you know, a theater, and you can kind of, like, our job is to, like, run the lights and the, run the tickets, ticketing, and, 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 you know, set up the billboards. But, you know, these product, someone else comes in to, you know, stage and perform the play or, the music, right? And we're, we're just there to provide platform to the content. And I think that's a very fossil, fossil, uh, fossil, 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 what's, how do you pronounce that word? I, I write it all the time. Facile? I say yeah. facile. Facile? Yeah. It's a very facile analogy. We just give like four different. <laughs> it's a very fossil, it's a very facile uh, analogy. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, because I think it, you know, it makes Face a lot of intuitive sense. Facile. It's a very f- fakil, uh analogy that uh, <laughs> it's a very facile uh, analogy. <laughs> that's that, the one. That's the one. <laughs> facile. <yeah. laughs> that, uh, you know, that that's what that's what we do. Uh, but, you know, I challenge that because, you know, I think that and, you know, this was raised uh, recently by uh um, um, I think he was like an epidemiologist or something like that. And he said that the New York Times, what they were doing, what amounted to journalistic malpractice in his in his perspective, in his point of view, because he said when it came to the coronavirus, that the New York Times was printing articles that said scientists say shutdown necessary, like we need a national shutdown and quarantine, absolutely necessary. Uh, Trump officials disagree. And so, the, like, they were saying that the New York Times always did this thing where they escaped from the debate. And they said, well, we have scientists on one end and then we have Trump officials on the other. And this guy was saying, like, do you as a newspaper respect science? Do you believe in science? Or do you think that science should be put up to debate against Trump officials? 
right? Because at some point, you're going to have to understand that, like, if you're a newspaper that respects fact, that you can't constantly frame everything as science, science versus Trump, who wins? We're not taking a position, right? And he had a, he had a really good point there, which I think is that, you know, the idea that the platform doesn't takes no position is pure fiction, you know? And I think a lot of times, uh, you know, I think we fool ourselves into thinking that we can do that, that the house doesn't take a position. We're just here to see if maybe, uh, you know, well, one day we'll have, uh, you know, uh, left-leaning economists come in here and uh, say that deficits are not uh, of premium, uh, are not of prime importance. And then tomorrow we'll have Senator Tom Cotton say, roll the troops in or whatever. Like, you know, like, they're, this idea... Well, I think, I think they're... They're using objectivity. They're saying that they're objective, but they're actually using that word wrong because what they're doing is they're framing a fact and a angry tweet from Trump as two opinions, one on either side of a political argument. And that's just not what it is. And it's not objective to say that because if you were an objective reporter, you would report an objective fact. And they are hiding behind "quote unquote" objectivity to um, push a political agenda. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly what's going on, right? And um, and I think that the the fiction, you know, and I think that they use they, you know, they're guilty of, I think, in a way, um, sometimes sometimes using the illusion of objectivity by doing things like that right it's like they're that that kind of like trump officials say one thing scientists say another is a kind of smokescreen for them to say oh look we're being objective i think the future is looking very different from this right and i think that these smaller these these sort of like micro platforms that are coming up like something like the intercept or something like the gray zone you know or something you know something like that have clear even even something a little bit bigger than that like jacobin uh you know are clear you know they're not scared anymore of being clearly identified with uh a political stance or, or a central message and that the people who create those platforms like a glenn greenwald or a max blumenthal you know or a baskar sandara that these people have very, very uh, well artic- or clearly articulated uh, positions and that there's no secret that their platform is an extension of them in a, in a sense, of the creators of that platform, right? And um, recently, like Michael Brooks passed away, I think that there was no, you know, I there's no secret as to what he believes and there was no secret to the platform that he was building, what it was about, you know? And I think that we need to, uh, you know, we're moving past, I think this like notion of platform altogether uh, and towards, I think closer to something of called community or political community, something like that. That's I think more important, you know, it needs an organizing principle, not just, you know, Oh, we have this much reach, Oh, we have uh, you know this many subscribers, and we have this many channels, and we can provide you reach to an audience of this demographic. You know, no, I think it 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 really there's a more organic notion of of community around 
what we used to call what we call platforms, but I think we need to transition away from that notion, in my opinion. Well, you know, and you make an excellent point there because when you think about it, you know, now the you know, and you know, the the lonely socialist or the lonely libertarian in their small town can connect with people around the country, maybe around the world. They have they they can form a community or you know or you know whoever they are they can form a community with other people and uh, being able being able to you know move beyond because you know the upper echelon if you want to talk about the you know New York Times Wall Street Journal these kind of outlets right it's, here's an here's an interesting thing that applies to this so those outlets are, they they really are written for five percent of the over eighteen U.S. population, right? So that it's a little bit it's a little bit over like close to thirteen million people, right? So all of those all of those outlets are competing. Even the Atlantic, right? They're all competing for like you know thirteen million uh, Americans, right? To to be the to be the audience for them. And you know, like when you look at the New York Times, for example, if anybody really takes some time to really, I mean, there they, they, there is some stuff that they do good. The good content is usually not the stuff I think is, is, is it's on the political side or the or, you know or the more serious stuff. Which usually the more entertainment stuff they seem to get very well, and maybe some of the local stuff like what's happening in New York City they seem to get that correct. But when we get an international international stuff, yeah, they they definitely are not objective. They definitely they definitely have uh, they obviously definitely have a bias. So so much so if you remember when they wrote the article. Uh, after, after you know, everybody knows that they knew that there was accusations against Joe Biden in regards to sexual assault. But they were gonna, they were gonna, you know, meander around and wait, and then finally get around to it. And then when they wrote an article in which they obviously were siding with Joe Biden, you know, in this in this particular uh, case, and they wrote one line in the article that said the only thing he had been accused of was, you know, sniffing women, right, right. You know, or, or what they thought was credible, credible accusations, right? Credible accusations. And then the Biden campaign calls them and says they don't like that line. You got to take it out. They take the line out. And the New York Times was at least open and honest and saying, yeah, we took the line. We took the line out. I said, well, that's you're being open about a bit of, you know, a bit of quid pro quo going on here because, you know, you want to keep getting access to the campaign. If you don't take that out, they're not going to give you access. But you also have been open about taking it out there. I look at that and say, you know, that's again, th number one, that's not good journalism. And number two, that's not really being objective. I mean, because we all know that for some of these outlets, particularly the larger ones, what do they do? They're going they're going to wait for, you know, for the dust to settle before they decide to speak up on something that honestly, if it was somebody whom they didn't like. Right. Uh, they would have jumped on it, you know, quicker than, you know, within five minutes of, of, of something being announced on Twitter. They would be all over it with an article after article going going in on that individual or that group of people more specifically. So what, what, you know, what like a plan a does, what, uh, uh, you know, a Jacobin does what a lot of these other sorts of, uh, even, uh, I'll say the fifth column, all these people, all these independent folks, what they're doing is, you know, whether, whether, whether they intend to do it or not, you know, you know, we are, we are, we are taking champagne and caviar out of the hands of the elite media, right? We are, we, we are reshifting the direction you know, one one person at a time, we are reshifting the direction away from them and saying, look, they're not the gatekeepers to what is considered culture. They're not the gatekeepers to what is considered, you know, acceptable discourse. You know, they're not the gatekeepers to any of this stuff anymore. You don't have to go to them. You can go you can go to a Jacobin. You can go to these different platforms. Right. And and, or, and you know, like to the platform. But you can go to these different spaces and different communities. Right. And you can find not only solace in the community, but you can find a lot of you know, intellectually stimulating information 
and learn learn a lot and even just really build community with other people. And because these, you know, and because this is in existence, what you see happening from, you know, some of the you know the major media outlets out there is to attack these other, you know, to attack the others and say, you know. You know, like, for instance, you know, I remember Lee Fang, right, who's in San Francisco, Lee Fang. Uh, he wrote, uh, uh, he, he's he, over at the intercept. Right? Yeah, he's over at the intercept. Yeah, he wrote an article about, the, you know, he, he, he wrote an article about the protests that were going on in, uh, in uh, uh, Minnesota. Right? And I think he was actually there. If I remember correctly, he was there. But he went there, he wrote an article, he even shot some video, right, or got video recorded. And so he was posting about some of the different responses that, you know, he, he, he was really smart to say, I'm only talking to African-American people, right, who are here at the protest because they're the voices that need to be elevated, right? He was talking and getting different, you know, different, you know, sound bites from different people. And, and he posted, among all of the sound bites that he posted, he posted one in which there was an African-American person who was there to protest against the police, you know, police shootings, but also had a question about could this much energy be put, put forth toward what was happening in the community in terms of, you know, intraracial, you know, intraracial violence. He posted that and people demanded that people demanded that he lose his job, right? You know, that he that his job should 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 not be. And uh, to an extent he, he you know, he says it without saying it that in, to an extent his job was on the line, right? You know, for you know for doing that. And so when when I look at Lee Fang, I'm like, okay, I think that what just happened would be a sign that maybe you might want to. You might want to. You might want to eventually part ways, because maybe, maybe the 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 breadth of the way. Because I don't have a disagreement with the way he wanted to show a community, right? He wanted to, he, and he wasn't trying to do it just to say there's two sides, right? He wouldn't do it. It just this is what these were the different things that are happening, uh, and if you're getting attacked because or in any platform, but if you're getting attacked because you're expressing a difference, right, and you're being called racist, right? No way, Ling Fang is racist, but you know that's what happens on Twitter, right? You know, as soon as you deviate, any of that kind of come out, that that just looked at me and said, maybe it's a sign for Lee Fang to kind of, you know, think about it and say, maybe in the future it's time to move on, make a plan. You know, you, you can do you can do one of those things where you get together with some people and you start something and you can build a community and be able to express your voice and be able to express the stories and write about the things that that you want to talk about that are important and that you see as important. Doesn't matter whether I see it as important. Whatever you whatever you see as an important thing that you want to put out there, you should be able to do that. And I think that more people, you know, I think that more people of color should do that. And and you know, as much as you know, I have a lot of you know, I will have a lot of respect for some of the people, not all, who work in who work in the media outlets. But when they start complaining that you know that you know that these media outlets are are, are not treating them well because they're you know a person of color, I'm not that I'm not sympathetic. I'm just like okay, so that's the you hitched your train to that wagon, and now you found out like any other train you might try to hit yourself to that's like that. That it, it, it ain't all good, right? You, you know, you're not always you're not always being brought to the table that you want to be brought at. Well, it's not. I mean, I think with the Lee Fang thing, and I saw that tweet. I remember yeah, the tweet. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did. I disagreed with him. I think on on. I mean, I did read into what he tweeted as being a pattern with him of being. Um, I, I think a little bit disingenuous about race. Let's put it that way. That's my view. But because I think he's aware of the context, right? And and I think a lot of people like Lee hide behind 
you know, just saying, look, just just read what I wrote. And I and I re- it's a very small part of that interview. It was a, you know, uh, you know, but but he I think he intentionally looked to to go at it from that angle because I think it was a sort of a sort of a I think it was sort of a crumb left, you know, for some people to say that and and you see this with Jacobin too. I think there's a lot of you see this, uh, that there is a, that there is a, you and I have had this discussion before that is, is, is class and, you know, some, what, what is the relationship between class and race? And I think sometimes people get rope doped into trying to suppress the idea of race as a powerful force as it's a, an impediment to there being a class consciousness. And I felt that when, uh, I think the Intercept backed him up on this, and I think a lot of his friends backed him up on this. They were defending him, right? And I think what 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 what's important about this is to say that you know I think we're reaching we reach the limits where the Intercept as a platform has to decide whether it wants to back its guy or not, right? Do we as a platform back back up what he's saying? And and say this is what we yeah that's what we stand for we're going to defend that versus that I think you know it's it's a little bit disingenuous the New York Times and I, well maybe the Intercept did this I don't know but this notion of like well we're we don't stand behind him we're just standing behind his right to say it right and uh, you know I think that the online world this so called cancel culture or whatever which I think is overblown um, trades in this still in this older notion. To say, oh, the platform doesn't, be, you know, stand behind what the what the journalist said. Uh, the platform is just protecting the right of the journalist to say it. And then, of course, Lee Feng says, "Well, that's not what I meant anyway." So, so suddenly, like nobody stands behind the 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 notion, right? Neither the platform nor the journalist stands behind the notion. And I think that we're running up against something. You know, you know why I think this was good at the end of the day because it is a real bona fide disagreement. It is not about trying to cancel Li Fang. It is not about trying to say he's a racist. It is not about trying to say uh, that any other, uh, you know, leftist POC, I guess Li, Li Fang is Asian American, right? Um, yeah, or like a Brianna uh, Joy, I always get her name reversed in the Brianna Joy Gray. That, you know, and I think she has tried to straddle this line of of controversy between the intersection of race and class, which is an unsolved issue in society. We don't have an answer for it that everyone agrees about. It's one of the central confusions of American politics. How does race and class intersect? And, you know, I think that the fact that we're, we're kind of dividing over this, that there's controversy over this, what's wrong with that? Of course, there's going to be controversy over this. We haven't figured it out. You know, so when people are disagreeing with Lee, one one group says he's, you know, discounting race and the other one says, no, he's being real about, uh, you know, notions of, uh, you know, ways in which race might be covering up larger social problems. In a sense, you have a real disagreement. So let's disagree. And if that requires that we split up and, and, and that this platform suddenly has to back one side of this controversy. Do it. Take a take. You know, stop. Stop pretending like you don't. Well, we're not really wading in. We are, but we're not because we know that you know. Uh, say, say Jackman, for example. We know that they stand for the proposition that 
class identity trumps race. We know that. Have they figured out the complexities of that? No, I don't think so. But they've taken a position. And I think that to the extent that they're saying, oh, we're not commenting on this controversy. We're just fighting for we're just defending the enlightenment ideals that the journalists should get to have say what they say without undue, you know, consequences. Oh, bullshit. Have the disagreement. Stand for something, you know, like stand up for it. Uh, and I think that's, um, you know, something as a smaller you are and the less consequential you are, the more freedom you have to do it. And I think that as do it for doing plan A, that's been one of the great freedoms and pleasures of it is we have nothing to lose. And so we don't shy away from taking positions. It's not like we implemented some firewall between the editorial staff and the, you know, and our, you know, uh, op-ed staff or whatever. No, we're just a bunch mm-hmm. of people on the internet and just say what we think. Um, and I think that's... So, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you know what? I think that's it. I think that's, that's also an important thing. And I think what also goes goes about with this case, when you, I think of the nation and uh, the new republic, uh, and I kind of think of, you know, I even, you know, mm, not, I think of reason, I haven't really seen that kind of dust up happening in reason, but I think, of, but I even think of some of the more, uh, uh, you know, right-leaning outlets in there, and it, and it always seems to me, left or right, however part of the scale you want to say there, different ones are on. I noticed that when people of color are brought into the platform, right, are you know brought it brought into their outlets, right? They're brought in to be the voice for whatever the dominant culture in there wants to express to the community, right? So, you know, when you think about uh, what is his name, Adolf Reed, right? I don't know if you heard about him being yeah, being, yeah. being being removed from from a uh, you know being able to do a live lecture, right? Because because of, because of his you know his views. I'm like, there are a lot of people that share his view, right? You know, on that, and lots of people of color who share his view. So it is not necessarily that it it, it is a unique perspective that he was putting out there, and it wasn't even like a provocative perspective that I would say. Why are you canceling his lecture? And by the way, even though, you know, me and Adolph Reed may have many, many disagreements, I wanted to watch this lecture because I was interested in it, by the way, but I, you can see him in other places. But, uh, you know, when you when I think of when I, when I when I look at that and I think about that, I'm saying that. Because he took a position, and I'm glad he stuck to his position, right? He didn't change his position. He didn't go around and do an apology tour, or, or you know, he didn't do he didn't do the whole. What I really meant to say was, right? Because you know, people like to do that. He just kind of held to it, and and okay, they canceled him from his lecture and don't want to disassociate with him within the DSA, you know, or, or or in certain certain quarters of of the of of the media on that side that. That, that he's in, that he just held to his guns. I actually prefer it for it in the same way that you do. That people hold to their guns and let the chips fall where they may. You know, let you you know who's really with yeah. you. You know who's know who's really with you, and you have to be that kind of person who's just like. And this is my the way I, way I think. When it comes to race, I'm not going to let anybody, particularly uh, um, you know, any people, any white people, try to tell me where I where I need to sit and where I need to stand and where I need to be. I'm going to have I'm going to, whatever, whatever views and ideas that I have, I'm going to have them. I'm going to hold to them. And if that means, you know, and, and if that means, and if that means we're not kosher with one another, then we just ain't kosher. You know, that's just how it is. Yeah, right? I mean, I don't give a shit, you know, what an Andrew Yang or a Michael Luo writes in the, in the Washington Post or the New York Times about being Asian American. It doesn't have, it doesn't hold any currency with me. Uh, 
you know, because um, I, 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 I don't know if the imprimatur of either of those papers means anything to me, especially with regards to. I think, I think maybe like to the extent that we're talking about, you know, that they would not print factually erroneous uh, things, and especially in their news section. That's an important function. They're journalists. But I, you know, I'm not, that's the other thing. I think we need to distinguish between journalism reporting a fact versus, you know, what we're talking about, which is uh, something very different, you know? And I think that there's this blurring. I think too many people are calling themselves journalists these days when they're not journalists. They're people who, they're soapboxers, right? They're people who want to express an opinion or a view of the world. Uh, or they want to push an agenda. And there's nothing wrong with that. But don't call yourself a journalist. You know, a journalist, I think, is a very specific skill set about reporting as objectively and fairly and accurately as possible, you know, on material facts of importance. And that's but I mean, that's what the skill. New York Times is doing. They're purporting yeah. that they're journalists, but they're actually soapboxing it. Or like they're doing well, both, you know? They're doing both. I think they have great journalists, but you don't hear – like when it comes to coronavirus, you don't hear as much from their great journalists like Donald McNeil, who's fantastic. But you hear yeah. from fucking Brett Stevens, you know, or some other asshole in the op-ed writing – who don't know anything about science uh, or medicine the way a Donald McNeil has spent his whole career reporting on. But nobody cares about him. They they want to they know what – Barry Weiss has to say, you know, like mm -hmm. it's garbage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 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 this is that's what sells. And this is an important yeah. and this is an important thing because when you when you look when you look at it, and this and this is again this is a rule we have at at, at Modern Treatise for for our writers when they're writing. If you're going to cite if, like if you're going to cite a scientist or you're going to cite a medical doctor or somebody uh, in something that you're writing, make sure that that person is not just the you know the celebrity you know, medical physician of the day who gets to comment on everything, even though, even though, even though they don't really have, you know, the skill set, that's not what they studied. That's not the part of medicine they, 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 they are, you know, well-versed on, right? Don't go to those kinds of people, right? You know, don't, don't get Bill Nye the science guy. He is not the answer there. I don't like him that much. He's not the answer. He's not the be all end all from it, you know, uh, you know, to do that. Get the, find the individuals. And sometimes these are the individuals who you're not going to hear about, you know, in the major media, find the individuals who really have that information, who really have that knowledge. That's the person you should be looking at. Like, what, are, what are they writing? What are they saying on this particular subject matter? Because that's how, that's how you get better and good good and objective news but you know what what is his name uh paul krugman knows what people want to hear right so he's gonna well, thing, like not everybody is gonna be able to have the time or the resources to look it up for themselves so that's why it's important for the mass media to actually present that in a digestible way but that's not happening because they're all fault you know working for the bottom line here and the thing right. is you know, I mean, I guess that is what is important about like smaller publications and like smaller platforms like ours is that we have people who can digest that information and present it in a way that other people will be able to understand. And like Teen, you said like you don't care what Jeff Yang or Michael Woe is saying on the New York in, in the New York Times. Um, and that's true for me too. It's true for me personally. I don't give a like what he says, I don't think is true, you know, but it bothers me that he is out there saying it.
because other Asian Americans, the, that's the only person that they see saying things like that. And they think, and, and it's also the only Asian person that like the predominantly white audience of the New York Times sees saying anything to represent the Asian American community. And them seeing that will impact me in a material way in like a day-to-day way, because the way that they see me will be reflected in the way that they see him. And that's what fucking bothers me about people like that, having that stage and that platform. Yeah, that's true. Uh, On the other hand, I wouldn't necessarily say like, you know, my goal is to block these people from being able to access the New York times to write their piece. But, um, but, but for sure. I mean, I think that the more people lead the way, uh, Diana, like like you have, and go and just demonstrate in any way possible to say you don't have to be a consumer of information. You can express your you you sh- you're a person. You're a person in the world, right? Like you're not you're not um, you know a hungry chick mouth, you know, begging the New York <laughs> Times to to drop you know to, to regurgitate uh, you know bugs into your into your gullet. Um, you're not that. Um, <laughs> And so don't, you know, don't make that, you know, don't close your eyes and bob your head waiting for it. And I, you know, and I think like I have, I have seen that there's been massive amounts of pushback and pressure and uh, on these people. And I think Jeff Yang, a lot of these people have been exposed for what they are, which are people with a fetish for being shamed in public. They, it's like they get off on it or something, you know, like they're what, what I think our friend, he called shame pigs. Like, you know, they, they're shameless people. Uh, and you know, and I think more and more people are, tra- are seeing this about a lot of these people. They're, they're, they're shameless, they're shameless, uh, opportunists and self, you know, they're narcissists. And when you hear from people who are not completely self-absorbed and are not trying to manage their own image and manage a media career, but are actually just people living a regular life, uh, who want to share, and uh, in 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 the discussion, in the in the in communication with fellow human beings, that and not as a form of careerism, but just as a for as a as a product of being a as a function of being human, right? Uh, that there there's been a lot. I think there's been a lot of movement, at, at least in the Asian American sphere. I've noticed a huge change in just the last few years, Diana. That. Uh, would be of a material, I think I have been of a material impact on the ability for say an Andrew Yang to spout his uh, model minority bullshit in the Washington Post. He got immediate pushback. In fact, I think the Washington Post was almost forced to publish uh, a young unknown woman, a unknown young woman, a, a student, I believe, who had a rebuttal to what he said in the Washington Post because they got so much pushback on it. That's uh, true. You know what I mean, and yeah. and and so I, I think that's it, it's definitely been good. I think there's there's definitely been some results there. Um, it, you know, and, you know, and, and when you think about what you guys are saying, yes, there are results. I mean, you know, Tana Tana Kota ran away ran, ran away from the media for a moment because because of the amount of pushback he got when people figured out that that he wasn't you know 
his concern about race and the race subject matters, you know, was is, w- had really morphed in from seeming like somebody who was seriously wanting to bring attention to racial issues into into just kind of using this as a way to you know uh, you know bring up his career, right? To to do the sort of you know to do almost performativeness of I'm angry, right? You know you know you know I'm angry about race, I'm angry about these things, but I really don't want to solve anything, right? I'm really not pushing for how you know what what are the policy solutions or what are those. I'm really just doing it. And so when he wrote his infamous piece, which really, really what has brought him to, to kind of fame was his reparations piece, right? When he wrote that piece in the Atlantic and, it, it, you know, and then he was having a back and forth and people thought he was really in on it. He ended up getting a $50,000 grant off of that, right? And he went off to France to learn how to speak French. What does that got to do with it? You know, what does that got to do? With, what does that got to do now? It took some years later for people to kind of catch on to the fact that, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, like Nicole Hannah, Hannah Jones now is doing, because now she's got it. She went from writing a, an article in the 1619 Project to having a movie that's going to be made, you know, with Oprah. Right. Right. So you, you can see how these people are using they're using their space in journalism and their platform in journalism. And, and she's one of those people who say, well, I'm just a journalist. Well, you're not really just a journalist, right? You know, the piece of work you didn't write was journalism. But as long as, as, long as using, like, the issue of race is a way to give you a stepping stone into, into the champagne circles, right? You know, then, then that was what she's going to use. As long as Ta-Nehisi Coates can use the race, he can write the books. And I'm not saying that, that books about race and racism are bad things and because they, they're necessary or even talking about that are necessary things. But it's a difference between people who are using this, you know, as a way to step up the, you know, the, the economic ladder uh, without any real concern about or, 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 or any long-term concern, let me say this, about the issue. Right? Yes, they may care about race, you know, or, or, on the sense of, you know, can we can we have more people of color working at the New York Times, right? You know, they might care about it in that much, but yeah, I mean, but they don't really care I mean, about I, it. I, but I, I mean, I, yes, I agree with that. I think we've long agreed on these things. I think a lot of people agree with that notion. I mean, I think though the question is like, what do you do about it? Because I think that the obvious answer that I think is wrong, actually, uh, because it just keeps recreating the process is that we should bum rush the stage and take it over or, you know, nominate someone else or try our best to sort of influence what's going on on the stage rather than, I think, just sort of like leaving the show. You know what I mean? Like, you know, being in the peanut gallery, throwing your peanuts, but then leaving the theater, leaving the theater altogether. You know, and I think that that's the step that people never take is we feel, you know, with this whole talk about media platforms, audience, reach, uh, you know, um, media figures, um, things like that, you know, we're still thinking about it in terms of this theater. It's a theater. There is a stage. That's the platform. There are people on that platform. Those are the media figures. And then there's everyone else. There's the audience. There's the one, and, and there's like, it's a class tier, just like a theater has a very classist, structure to it there's the there's the expensive seats you know and that's who the show's really being put on for and then there's the fucking peanut gallery right and i think that every time we think about media as poc you know we're we're complaining because we're in the peanut gallery and what we want is we want better seats and we want to see some of our people on stage so to speak right and that's the whole construct. That's the whole debate. That's the whole discussion. And it's tiring as hell because 
There's no new, there's no circulate. The circulation in the theater is really bad. Okay. And I think that what I've, you know, and I, and the same kind of uh, notion applies to Hollywood. And I think if you take, if you get back to more basic principles and, and philosophies like Plato's cave, then you start to understand what the nature of the theater really is. You can leave, you could leave the theater altogether. Uh, and you should leave the theater. I think that's the process that the creation, when we say new media or new, I don't even think of it as new media. I, I personally don't. I don't think of it as new media. I don't think of it as our media. I think of it as leaving media behind altogether, just leaving it, going outside, you know, uh, and um, reconnecting as people rather than, oh, as as oh we're both peanut gallery members you know or you know we're both we're both oh you bought front row seats too oh we're we're classy brothers you know like meeting outside of the theater and just realizing that the whole thing was a goddamn show i think that um you know more and more people are starting to take this point of view i don't know how prevalent this notion is but I do think that we have seen the uh, curtain behind the – we've peer, peered behind the curtain, so to speak. Uh, I think Hollywood, for example, is on its last legs. I, I, think, I think Hollywood is really struggling and uh, in a way that they've never struggled before. And I think traditional media is struggling to keep the show going. I think COVID has come around and really – it's 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 a huge intermission. We think of this as the intermission, and uh, everyone will be back. No, I don't think we're going to go back into the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's going to happen uh, either. Yeah. Yeah, but the problem is, what do you replace it with? You know, like what 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 what's new? And I think, well, what do we have to rebuild the goddamn theater? You know, like let's just uh, let's just play it by ear. You know, mm-hmm. let's just. Be people again. We, we have TikTok now. Like we don't need anything else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, well, you know, you know what? And this is interesting when you when I was listening to what you said, Teen, because about a couple of years ago at the BET Awards, um, you know, uh, Tyler Perry was given what they call it's like a uh, it's like a sort of vanguard kind of award, right? And he gets up on the stage. And he literally comes out and says, you know, as a part of his speech, while y'all were screaming, Oscars are so white, Oscars are so white. He said, I was down there in Atlanta, you know, buying a buying an old uh, Confederate base, right? Turning it into a studio when everybody was like, why aren't you, you know, you ain't doing anything in L.A., right? So he was like, say, I don't need to be in Hollywood. He doesn't need to be around him, right? So, I, you know, as one of those people that used to be like a critic of his, basically because of his material, critic of his material, I kind of said, I got to shut my mouth up because he, he, basically, he basically put me in my place because not only did he build a studio, but he also... Uh, Put on there, created a space for uh, women who come from domestic abuse situations, you know, and who don't have a place to go to, uh, uh, to exist. He put a school in there. He's doing. He so he's actually, and he and he built the studio obviously in a, you know, where where, where he bought the land, the, the part of Atlanta on the in the outskirts where it is. It's a more lower income area, area, and so he's using his success there to be able to have an impact on the community, right? So whether or not I, you know, I, I like his, you know, content quote unquote so to speak or whether I do that I mean this this is a guy who he who was who from the from the, from the time that he started because you know he was homeless in his car right he was like homeless in his car when I mean, he was doing theaters you're talking about he was doing the kind of theater that the people in Broadway would 
would mock, right? They would say they would mock, but he didn't care about that because the people who liked him, right? And I always like to say he has a very, you know, Southern black Christian audience, right? You know, those are the people that have been there for him from the beginning, right? To where he is now. He's never, he hasn't turned on those people and said, oh, you know, you know, to, to, to get big, I could get more money and bigger fame if I just, you know, went in this direction. No, he's always made sure to maintain that these are the people that got me here, right? These are the people that got me here. I'm going to always make sure that the people who got me here, the people who know, who people who like what he does, you know, the people who are there, that's what he's going to do. You know, criticism aside of what I think about his content sometimes or what I think about that stuff, I mean, I, I have to give him, uh, you know, credit for actually saying, I'm going, I'm going to, I'm going to, as you say, leave the stage, right? Right. I'm gonna leave it. I'm gonna act. Mean, it, like it sounds like he doesn't really give a fuck what you think or anyone and what anyone else thinks. He's just gonna do what he does, right? And uh, that's great. And um, you know, it, it's yeah. I mean, I, I just I just get very tired and and uh, worn down by this notion that we have to keep fighting for more representation and we gotta see we got to see more asian americans on the editorial boards not just in the newsroom and all this stuff and i'm like i ain't got time for this shit i don't have have time for this shit you know what i mean like what is going to be another 15 year project to you know and look back 15 years and see how far we've come no we haven't come very far at all in 15 20 30 40 years uh with this with these notions um uh yeah so uh uh, well, this 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 ended up being a lot, uh, quite quite an expansive conversation. But um, yeah, thanks for bringing up the topic, man. I, I think it, it it's a very important topic, but it's a it's a it's a one that I don't think is captured. Like, it's very difficult to have these ideas exchanged in the very medium in which we're trying to subvert. Right. Like no, no, no article will be written about this and published or no, like you'll, you'll not see the media discuss these notions of how they will be replaced. (laughs) Right. Or how they will, you know, or how they will meet fundamental limits of how they operate. Like there will never, there's, there, there, there are black holes that, you know, the media will never, the New York times will never conduct an investigation into itself well that's a good point i mean i feel like they're even pushing this uh uh you know this narrative of how poc or especially asians right now need the representation like we want it so bad like this is all we're focusing on which you know like for me i'm like over it like maybe Two or three years ago, I was like, oh, that's cool that they're making more movies. And now I'm completely over it. And the conversation in the mainstream media seems to be still stuck there. And I don't even think that's uh, by accident. I think they're actively trying to get us to incept this idea that we're so focused on media representation to make us consume more media that is dying because everybody else is fucking leaving because nobody actually wants this shit yeah because I, I i agree and i think that they you know with um it's funny because this coincides with a very recent push in hollywood to get more asian uh talent both in front and behind the camera on screen and everything and whatever and i think that at least for um a lot of people i know i don't know about large scale or whatever but i think that it is important that it um, there are some people who 
saw the patronizing tone and manner of it and the underwhelming product that it that they created and the you know just the just the overall tackiness of the way they go after the Asian American uh, audience um, by giving us hand-me-down rom-coms and and all this stuff, you know, like trying to catch us up because we were so deprived in the '90s. Oh, here's all your '90s style content in one year. Here's a decade of catch-up. You know, we could pretend like it's 2004. Uh, you know, like I think that when they finally decided to try and take Asian Americans again as a market as an audience, you know, as a group of consumers with consumer dollars that are valuable and therefore justify the attentions of corporations to come after us, that in that model, that capitalist model, the product is going to be poor. It's going to not be, you know, it's going to be created in a least common, it's a least common denominator uh, uh, method. You it's know, and I think one the least common denominator. Mm. I mean, they're they're catering to a caricature of what we're actually like because that they don't know shit about us. I mean, they've always been condescending to people of color. Like, remember in the nineties when they had all the black shows on one night because apparently black people only watch TV on Thursdays. And then they and then and and then, and, and then they had and then don't forget they eventually had the programs on the uh, on 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 their new sort of boutique networks right the ones the ones yeah. the ones that nobody the ones that nobody watching so they were expecting the African Americans to, to watch the to watch the programs on Sundays and Mondays right on those on those yeah. networks right while saying uh, you're not good enough anymore for the uh, NBC ABC you know we're not going in that direction anymore that's not who that's not who you know that's not who our advertisers are going after right? but, but it's tricky it's tricky though because in doing that you know again I think you know is so long as we're stuck inside the theater you know our complaint is that we're stuck in the in the peanut gallery in the cheap seats in the nosebleeds that's our complaint and it becomes a uh, it becomes a struggle for better seats in the house for for uh, more prestige, basically more more status uh, within the theater within the whole game. That why 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 is it that when I look in the back of the theater, it's a bunch of like black and Asian and Latinos and stuff, and in the front front row seats, it's all white people in uh, in tuxedos and shit. You know, like what's going on here? And it 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 again, it it is a it is a political fight. It's a bona fide political fight. I'm not going to say that it's not real. But the house always wins because the fight is taking place within the theater. No one is wondering why are the doors locked from the outside, right? (laughs) Like no one's wondering about that. We're just fighting within the theater. And we may think we're accomplishing something, something, but there is such a thing as a theater owner. And the theater owner doesn't give a fuck. They're like, I don't. At the end of the day, you guys sort out who sits in the front, who sits in the back. But we're going to still be charging admission. The seats are still going to cost the same amount of money. I don't really give a shit what you put on stage, but... I mean, I think the um, uh, the protests against police violence have really shown, like, turned the lights on in the theater and made us kind of realize, oh, this this is a game. You know, the jig is up because everybody is trying to abolish the police or defund the police. And then you have Netflix suggesting these black movies and that's the best right. you can do 
you know? Yeah. So yeah. I think, mm-hmm. I think if this, this time doesn't wake people the fuck up to how stupid and bullshit this whole media rep thing is, you know, like, <clears throat> Mm-hmm. I don't know what will. And corporate wokeness. I mean, they're ambulance chasers, right? Yeah. Like yeah. they're 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 the people that show up uh, you know, at crime scenes and be like, "Hey, uh, if you're in the uh market for uh coffins, I've got some uh great coffins for you." You know, like they're the they're opportunistic they're, uh, marketers. I mean, they're it's totally inappropriate to insert the act of corporate marketing and profit seeking at a moment like this of a national emergency, but that's exactly what we're doing. And I think, yeah, you're right, Diana. I think people are noticing these maudlin displays of profit seeking uh, at completely inappropriate times. And I agree. I, and, I agree with you on that. <laughs> I yeah. 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 It's Netflix putting on the Kinte cloth and kneeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think they yeah. even know what it is. But even this, like immediately, immediately after the Jory Ford situation, all of a sudden there were articles in BuzzFeed, like things they never reported on before. Here, here are ten black fashion designers you can support now. Really, that's what you that's mm-hmm. what, that's what you're doing. Really, and 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 maybe I was looking at it in two ways. Number one, you never cared to talk about these people ever, right? But all, and uh, so so you're only doing it because of this situation. Now you're just trying to capitalize off of this situation to get clicks, right? By 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 saying you're going to dedicate, you know, pieces of content that are just going to only highlight, you know, uh, you know, black people for the for the moment, right? As, as, your, as your sign of media media, you know, media protest, you're going to highlight. You're going to highlight. Okay, okay, you know, if you were going to do it, which I don't care whether they did it either way. Like you didn't have to do it, and you weren't going to do it anyway, so I wouldn't look at your outlet anyway. But if you were going to do it, you should have. It, this shows you how messed up or fucked up their minds is. You never thought about it all these other times, right? You know, in terms of individually, right? You know, doing it. You just right. decided to highlight it in a crisis. Yeah, I mean, it's not bad overall. Like, I think the as POC, especially as um, Black Americans now, we you should just take whatever you can get. Um, but with the understanding like like this is the game take what you can get and just fucking walk out of the theater right like my friend he was like interviewed um you know he's like a phd in genomics and like uh, data science and he was interviewing with this company uh on you know like some some like data driven you know uh cancer treatment startup and he was talking to them like a year and a half ago about the need for more um black american data uh in in their um repositories and they were like oh yeah yeah yeah, cool we'll think about it and then they didn't call back and now after george floyd they were calling him and being like oh we want to just like you know we want to learn from you you know we want to change our product we want to like really connect with communities and like he was asking me for advice on you know like what to do like if if whether to accept that offer and i was like these fuckers are assholes like you told them what they should have been doing a year and a half ago and the only reason that they're coming here to you now is because you're probably the only black candidate that they had talked to in that whole year and a half and i was like you know like just fucking charge them whatever the fuck you want gouge them do like $500 an hour and just like do the minimal work and then fucking leave you know because these people are not fucking for real 
Like they just they're just here for their own personal benefit. So you should just take what you can get. I think you're right, but I think I think they can serve their own weird purpose in a way like like you know how like betting markets in Vegas are like much more they're very accurate in a way because like they they show the like you know there's nothing in a way there's nothing more honest and 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 less biased than you know the like degenerate gambler who's just trying to make the right bet like the degenerate gambler doesn't have like a bias towards Boston sports teams you know like the the degenerate gambler wants to pick the winner you know what i mean and i feel like corporations are degenerate gamblers in a way and to see them now you know so desperately trying to appear woke and to and to fix their racial imagery I think in a way is a signal that this is pretty fucking serious this time. You know, like people may laugh at the idea of these uh, companies finally retiring their racist. Like the idea that the Washington Redskins is getting rid of the name, has gotten rid of the name Redskins. After, and I grew up in the D.C. area. I know that that means something. I don't, mean, I don't think it means that Dan Snyder uh, had some kind of wake up call. Uh, in terms of like morality or in terms of uh, social justice or anything like that, or just even plain uh, political correctness. I don't think that's it. I think that the fact that large corporations with a lot to lose are suddenly saying, oh, yeah, we can't do, you know, Aunt Jemima anymore and we can't do Redskins anymore. They're like, yeah, this time some shit went down. Like this, 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 this is kind of real, guys. Like we're gonna, you know, like we have to, we have to bet, we have to change the odds on the board now. Uh, so yeah, uh, Diane, I think that response is perfect. It's like take advantage of these psychos. You know what I mean? Like scalp them for all they're worth. They're they're psychos. They're opportunists <laughs> or whatever. But yeah, that's like that psychotic profit driven nature of them. Also, in a way makes them valuable signals. And I think I have been blown away by the way corporate corporations have been trying to uh, create cover for themselves, you know, because like before corporations were so desperate to not to be politically neutral. And now they're just like, Oh my God, we have to do, you know, (laughs) even the corporations have picked a side. Asian Americans pick a side for fuck's sake. I mean, like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Aunt Jemima, like Nabisco picked a side. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> come on now. Well, I mean, Nabis- Nabisco reveals Nabisco. how much power we, the consumer and worker class, actually has. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does, yeah. It's a, it's a huge signal. Yeah, it means it means if we organize, we can fucking destroy those capitalists. They're terrified. Yeah, They're they terrified. are so fucking terrified. It's it's actually it reminds me of how um like slave owners in the in the past they were terrified of you know rebellion and that's they they kept the control with fear you know by saying we have the power we have the power but actually they knew that they didn't they were outnumbered on their stupid fucking plantations and if anybody organized like they they would just been murdered in their beds and like that is what the capital class is it was they're the same you know they're fucking terrified that we will uh guillotine they literally think that we'll guillotine them and that is our power and we need to just organize 
And and you know what? I, I I knew that something was different in the air this time around. I mean, I knew, I'm, and, and I'm just saying from the moment the George Floyd situation happened, I could just, you know, I get a good sense. I said, something is very different in the air right now. Right? Just something is different. This is not like in the past. This is not the past 10 years or so where, you know, something happens and then it just, oh, a month or two, you know, everybody's back to whatever they were doing. Right? You know, everybody comes out and makes their sort of, oh, you know, we support this or we don't support this or, oh, we, you know, we're, you know, you know, you know, we're we're trying to be Switzerland, right? You know, in the situation, and this time it was like no. People were definitely coming out, and I wonder, and I, and this is this would be this is always a question I ponder. If this if this thing had happened and Donald Trump wasn't president, would this be going down? Or is it? Or, or did we? And, and and did we need him for this to happen? Right, in a way. Did, did his being president in some way and, and his personality and the things that we know lots of people don't like about it, did we need this for it to kind of really kind of lift that final veil, right, and, start, and let people kind of see what was happening, you know, in, you know, in, in, in the back of the theater, you know, you know not, not in the back, but in the back. I think it did. I mean, even if it wasn't his personality, just that his complete ineptitude in dealing with COVID, you know, forced everybody into their homes for multiple months it forced like uh, it forced america and white americans to pay attention and i think that was that was big for this i i I think i think trump turning out the federal troops the way he did uh i'll call them troops i know they're law enforcement or whatever but they're fucking troops i mean you've seen them uh they look like they're invading uh a foreign country but they're invading k street uh, in Washington, D.C. I think that was a turning point for America. That was a turning point for me personally uh, to see that. I think it was a turning point for America in the world, for the world to have seen that, to have shock troops come and tear gas foreign media, like reporters. Uh, you know, it's one thing if you're tear gassing black protesters in Ferguson because the media doesn't, is able to contextualize that because the media is racist. But when you shoot a white reporter in the face with uh, a tear gas canister and she's from Australia, that's a that is a turning point for America on the world stage. I mean, unfortunately, that's what it takes, but it, it did happen. And, um, you know, I think that uh, we've passed it, there was a Rubicon that we crossed that I think a better president would have reigned in, you know, and, and, and yeah. I think maybe it could have gotten bad, but I don't think we would have got, crossed the Rubicon the way we did. But I don't think there's any going back from here on out. And I think media uh, and the whole con game that is media uh, will be crumbling with that, you know? And I think there's a reason why I don't think media is a making money-making proposition anymore. I think it has become almost purely a tool of propaganda. It, the, 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 the media does not, is not a independent business in and of itself the media is the extension of some other powerful structure. For example, Amazon owns the Washington Post. I know Jeff Bezos owns it, not Washington, not Amazon, but it's the same fucking thing, right? Uh, the New York Times similarly is owned by rich people, by like people like Carlos Slim. Uh, uh, the the media is not independent. It is a money is a lost leader. It is a prestige asset, and it serves the purpose of the person who owns it, much like uh, the way um, a, a sports team, you know, is, benefits the owner. And I, I think that we're seeing this 
become exposed for what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know how many people get it yet, but all of the necessary information is out there. Here's, a, here's, an, interesting, here's an interesting proposition. I think that it is, is, that the, is that the educated class of people, us educated class of people, have not gotten the message that people in the lower classes already got. Because people in the working class and lower class don't care about no New York Times. You know, they're not looking at that. They've known about it. They've known, about it. They've, they've known, they, they've about known what it is. Well, th- and this is why I'm saying that, yeah. you, know, the, you know, like we talk about cops being the thin blue line. It, yeah, yeah, in a way. But, you know, it's the upper middle class that's the real thin blue line in America. You know, it's the elite. Uh, I call them the middle class. And I know middle class traditionally has very like, you know, the middle 75% of America and, you know, images of Roseanne Barr and, and you know, uh, the, you know, but I think that the real middle class in America is actually a fairly elite select group of people um, that are in the top nine, you know, in the, what I call the next nine and that it's they who have been in trust. You know, I think it's their attitudes who is the real thin blue line in America. And I think that uh, we're starting to see maybe a challenge to like their security and their loyalty. And I think when that happens, you'll, you know, what we're going to see, we're, we're really going to start to see things fall apart. And uh, I, I, I encourage it honestly, because I think a lot of things need to fall apart. It, we need creative destruction. We're not, that's another thing is that we're always saying like, okay, we need to create better alternatives, but that sometimes requires you to clear cut. You know, you sometimes need to clear cut and condition the land, re- reclaim the land before you can quote, grow new crops, grow new things. And uh, we may not be in a position where there's just not enough fucking sunlight. You can't grow when you have these giants sucking up all of the sun. Uh, I think we need to clear cut a little bit. And I think people need to be a little bit more comfortable with the idea that we need destruction uh, before we can have more creation, you know? And uh, so with the media whole thing, you know, media thing, uh, I say, you know what? Fuck them. I like rejoice in their, in the, in, in, in the fall of traditional media. Um, And uh, have you noticed that there's been a lot of like, We've been trained to hate social media. We've been trained to think that social media is the root of all evil. We've been trained to think that Mark, we've been trained to hate Mark Zuckerberg, who is a hateable, disgusting person. I agree. But on the other hand, we have not been similarly trained to hate Carlos Slim or Jeff Bezos uh, or anyone else who has taken the reins of, uh, or, or Rupert Murdoch. We haven't really been trained to hate these people the way we've been somehow trained to hate Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, is Rupert Murdoch, has he been blamed and hauled in front of the Senate to, to account for his support of Trump? No, but Zuckerberg is. And I, and I think that's because traditional media has launched a counter, has launched an offensive against social media to teach us to hate a platform that is inherently democratic. Yes, it's subject to nefarious control and, inter, and, 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 um, and um, bias. That's true. Uh, but it, I mean, compared to mainstream media, it is far more democratized and the, your average person has the ability to create a following and uh, to to create a platform within the platform, so to speak. Well, uh, it's also a huge racial divide. I read a survey maybe a year or two ago that said that most white Americans consider uh, Twitter to be just like a fire, you know, a dumpster fire of completely irrelevant garbage 
and most people of color consider uh, Twitter to be a place where they can get information on the news that impacts them more. So, That's interesting. Yeah. I think and, and Twitter was started out that way. It's always I think in the beginning when Twitter before the sort of latest iterations of Twitter, but uh, Twitter was known as a pretty black social media uh, network, right? I mean, bl- black people were overrepresented in Twitter in that sense. I think they accounted for almost like a third of the traffic on Twitter. Uh, but we've been taught to hate Twitter. And we've been we've been taught to, you know, whoever says, hey, stop reading the newspaper. Nobody. Who, whoever says, you know, stop. But we're always like, oh, yeah, take a social media break. Uh, you know, and I'm not saying don't. OK, but I'm just saying you never hear the other thing. Right. And we never hear how evil, uh, you know, um, Rupert Murdoch is. But we all see the pictures of uh, Zuckerberg and how shitty he is. And, 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 and let me add something to that. Right. Reason why mm-hmm. some of the media outlets, you know, uh, uh, you know, and, and these uh, big folks at the top here, the reason why one of the reasons why they want to have so much you know, regulation over the, over social media platforms, you know, like Facebook and Twitter and many of those, because you know, those people like uh, Rupert Murdoch and those folks, they hate, they hate Mark, they hate Mark Zuckerberg more than maybe the average person who might have some, some hate. I don't really have no, I don't hate him or like, or like him or hate him either way, you know, but, you know, but, but, but what they don't like is, what they don't like is that somebody like him or somebody like the owners of, of Twitter or Instagram, or well, it's Facebook, or that, but people owning these social media platforms, you're right. They have a way to not only democratize, right, but they have a way to allow, you know, the people, you know, if you want to say the peasants finally have a voice, right? And the peasants, the peasants don't, yeah. the peasants don't have some guy coming out and standing up on a, you know, on a podium, right? You know, with a microphone telling them, you know, this is what the king must say, right? They- Facebook did to news and and uh, yeah, I think it, Facebook did to news and 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 other kind of opinion media uh, and journalism uh, what Netflix did to Hollywood. You know, I think that what streaming did to what did to entertainment. And um, but we're not really taught to hate uh, streaming the way I think we're just we we've been really the news media, in my opinion, has used its own power to really teach us to hate social media and any anything adjacent to social media. So, you know, we're 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 taught to hate the archetype of the Instagram influencer, which is a hateable archetype, don't get me wrong. But 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 they but they bias the the image to say that all that's all social media is. It is just the Instagram influencer, it's the avocado toast white girl. Um you know, it's the, you know, racist tweet, Twitter, it's Kanye on Twitter, you know, it's all this stuff. It's just celebrity narcissism through and through. And I'm like, celebrity narcissism on social media, uh, only if you're a narcissistic celebrity, would you have narcissistic, you know, problems with narcissistic uh, celebrity on social media. But if I look at traditional media, it's built on top of that as a foundation. Whereas when I go to social media and I hunt for really interesting takes by smaller accounts or mm-hmm. more unusual accounts, it's there. It's, it's all there. It's there, for you, it's there for you to see it. And, and and again, when you look at the whole influencer thing, which they like the rail against, let's just keep it real. These were the people. These were the people that were never going to be ever let into the theater or put on the stage at the theater, and they just went and created their own. They curated their own little theater and started to get. 
and started to get people who wanted to see what they see what they had to do the way they do it. They didn't have- in, in in the best case, in the other cases, it just became a side hustle of someone who was already famous. You know, uh, so so John Legend is a superstar, and then his wife becomes an influencer on uh, Twitter. You know, something like that. It's a it's a side hustle, but it's still part of mainstream media. But they're using social media as a side hustle, and the media has been demoni- is been demonizing and also like slumifying social media. And for me, it's been frustrating because I, I think social media is a huge democratizing force. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, notwithstanding, I mean, I would prefer not to use Facebook or to use Twitter, but that's what we're on. But it's better than nothing. It's better than fucking you know. Just your just cable TV and mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. your newspapers. That's it. And, you know, and here's the thing: I always say this. There's an interesting difference when I think about Twitter and Facebook. If you want to know how people are going to vote, go to Facebook, right? right. That's how you're going to find out what what. That's what you're going to find out about the voters, right? You know, if you you know yeah. Twitter, Twitter, Twitter has serves a very different purpose in the way in which it goes. But like, if you want to know if you want to know how an election is going to turn out, you know, or, or you want to get a sense of an idea of what people are really thinking in that prospect, they go on Facebook because that's where you get to see your grandma and your grandpa and even your uncle who you don't like, right? You know, and you're gonna get you're gonna get the real sense of of, of, of everything everything on Facebook. And then yeah, you know, Twitter, you know, I think part of the other thing that you see that these me- big media giants are doing to social media is that they're trying to come in. And and they're trying to clamp down on what is considered productive and acceptable speech, right? Right. They're trying. They're trying to force the platforms in there. And while some people might say on the surface, right, on the surface, yeah, you probably don't want you probably don't, you probably don't want people who are engaging in Nazism or people who are, who are yes, there's a limit. Like you don't want people threatening people's death or do certain things. But in a way, they're they're using that that really doesn't happen that often, right? That that kind of stuff is not really, you know, on, on Twitter. It's not it's not the predominant thing to happen. It just seems they like to blow it up when it does happen, right? They, but it's not the predominant thing. But they want to use that to really kind of put restrictions. And what those restrictions end up starting with is when it starts with when it starts with saying, well, these kind of people aren't acceptable. Then all of a sudden, at some point, you're not acceptable anymore, right? And so and, the, and and so they started by getting you in the areas that they think that you can get most people to agree with, right? And then slowly but surely, slowly but surely, they start coming in and they start saying, "Well, you know, you're not the right Chinese voice on this platform, right? You know, we don't like that. You know, you're not the right black voice on this platform, or you're not the right this person, or whatever. You know, whatever, whatever, whatever. However, they're going to chalk it up to to try to uh, erase you, and then themselves try to have you know control. You know, because one of the things I hate about these platforms is, I, I. I, I I don't like I hate the I, you know uh, like you guys hate I hate the whole verified thing right I, you know I hate the verified people because somehow you know as we know that they're whatever they say which is usually not that good is going to be given more weight on social media right because they have the audience right so they can so so if you if you were to get into debate with someone on social media and you had the facts on your side in something right just because that person's a bigger platform whatever whatever they decide to say back right. You're looking like the asshole, or 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 they can just easily turn it around. This is what happens a lot. You even see the media people; they will accuse people who challenge them of being trolls. People in the base, you know, someone in your, you know, they'll use a the thing like, "Are you just some person in the basement, right? Living in your mama's basement, or do any of that kind of stuff?" So, there are various ways in which in which the media outlets are trying to basically, uh, you know, put the screws in on social media. Uh, this is one of the reasons why. You know, they've been trying to go go about saying whether or not uh, Twitter is, you know, 
a, you know, a social media platform or whether it's like a, a publisher, right? To try to make that distinction, because if they can make it, in, if they can say that, you know, Twitter or even Facebook is a publisher, then, you know, the media giants say that that's, that's how they get their power back, right? That's how they gain their control. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, uh, and we should, we should probably, this has been a long, a good, great discussion, uh, maybe some closing thoughts, but I think, you know, uh, Dave, like I, I, I've long wanted to try and actually put down some like principles of Brown, not, not to say that I've learned anything worth well, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to shortchange myself here or the experience of anyone that has worked on Plan A, but I would say that I, you know, I've I've kind of wanted to try and distill out some like lesson learned. You know what I mean? Like because I think of when we're talking about this this whole thing about like Facebook and and traditional media, you know, people think like um why do I have music playing? Oh, um, <laughs> I was like, this is the outro music. Oh, shit, I got to hurry up. Uh, <laughs> I was like, uh, you are inside the podcast. You're inside oh, the shit. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, I was going to say, you know, I don't know necessarily if it means that Facebook is the future and the old media is on the way out and it's going to get replaced. I think of it more like social media in a way is like an asteroid or whatever. It's like a, some kind of annihilating event. You know what I mean? And and I don't know if the asteroid itself is the future. You know, like, I don't know if Facebook is the future. I just know that Facebook and Twitter and all this shit came along and it just changed the whole fucking situation. And it's a, it's in chaos. And I think media is, is it, if you consider Facebook part of media uh, and or Netflix part of media, they're at war with each other and, and good for us little people to have these titans fighting. And destroying each other, and I think that presents opportunity the way that uh, the small mammals came to rule the planet after the asteroids came and knocked out the dinosaurs. You know, like, but you need to be nimble and to understand what's going on. And I think I've, I think you know, I've long wanted to like distill out some like lessons. And I think one of them that I've learned is that the whole notion of scope and reach is overplayed i think that we care too much about how many followers we have we care about you know how and this is the hustle right the hustle and the 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 idea of um of media's commerce is what's my reach what's my demographic what's my you know what's my audience what's my core mess you know what's my who, who are my my you know what's the core demographic i think that's very marketing speak of an older world and I think more than quantity, I think it's it's quality. I think it's it's not how many subscribers you have or followers or whatever, but it's the depth of engagement that you have that really matters. You know what I mean? And it's it's a mix of both. I mean, you don't want like just one stalker, you know? yeah. <laughs> but but you but like I think you do want a mix of you know what is the ideal mix? What is the ideal size of what I want to do? Because it's not infinite. You know what I mean? Like if you want to have high engagement with people and get really dig into uh, something deep, deeper than you see traditional media doing, your audience should be smaller. You should aim for a smaller audience. You shouldn't aim for millions. You know what I mean? Uh, Because with millions necessarily comes a flattening and a shallowness. And so I think that, you know, for us, like I've always 
never cared about how many subscribers or listeners or whatever that we had. It's always been about depth of engagement. And uh, that meant really primarily for the people who were, you know, creating stuff, not really even for people that were consuming it, so to speak. And so um, I think that's the, that's a, that's a part of like the new media landscape that I think is going to be crucial is like, what's, what kind of relationship do you have with your quote audience? You know, because I don't think we can do, I don't think we're all meant to mass scale to, you know, to passive consumptive audiences anymore. I think we're going to see audience that it blurs the line between, like, for example, we're doing a pod with you. You're not, I don't think of you as a consumer of plan A, you know, you're like a person that I know through it. You know what I mean? And I think that'll be the kind of future is like, do you consume it or are you participating in it? And I think that that line is, should get blurred more and more as we get. Mm -hmm. Um, And I agree with you. And I, I would say, you know, it's important with, with our platforms that, you know, we don't want to. We don't want our platforms, or your media, or however you want to uh, label it. You don't want it to be something where where people are signaling, right? You know, because a New York Times reader is a, somebody signaling their economic status because they have the New York Times or the economic status they wish to be in. They're signaling with the Wall Street Journal. They're signaling with the Washington Post, right? They're signaling because they're because they're reading. That's just that's just that's just that's just a, a whole different game. And what I believe, and I think we try to do this across all AM publishing brands, is we. I have four values, and I have the values on the site, and it is commitment to intellectualism, audience-focused, not in the sense of chasing numbers, but audience-focused, quality over quantity. I would rather have one or two good articles come out on a, you know, uh, a, you know, a day than I would rather have 30-something half- you know, ask done articles done just to check clicks. So I want something that people can come back and read six months later, a year later, and think that that was a pretty good piece. I want something that even for the writers, I want them to have work that at some point they'll they'll move on and go and do something else. That just happens in life, no problem. But I want them to have the kind of work that they can put in their own portfolio and say, look what look at the look at the high quality journalism that they did. Because a lot of the writers I bring on. They would, you know, if, if they were to really try to jump into the journalism game right now, and even not right now, just just now, just meaning at the time, they would be serving somebody coffee, right? Right? You know, they be you know, they may get a chance to write a byline. So this gives them an opportunity for them to really say, look, this is my voice. I can really write this. I can even write better than maybe somebody at the New York Times, but they'd never given that opportunity unless I, you know, worked my way through whatever what you know, whatever champagne rooms they have, you know, to be able to get an opportunity. But then we also have heterogeneous voices, right? I'm always going to be committed to, and I think, you know, uh, at least for, for my, you know, for AM Publishing, I'm always committed to really having a diverse diversity of voices. And to me, diversity is beyond the outwardly stuff that we all uh, sometimes see people fixating on, like, you know, Oscars are so wider, all that kind of stuff. But it is really about understanding that within communities that there are different voices in those communities and people have different ways of, 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 you know, looking at things, different ways of perspectives and that I never want us and I never, and I never want us to, to be a platform that puts people of color in a certain kind of box, right? And say, this is the box you're in, or this is the box you're in, or just people in general in a box, male, women, whatever, however, in a box, just to really be open to allowing for it and constantly, having a space for people to really share different perspectives, disagreeing perspectives, and know that you can disagree on a lot of different things at the end of the day, or some things at the end of the day, and it doesn't have to turn into this sort of elite media turning you, turning, turning each other into red coats and blue coats. 
you know, trying to trying to place everybody else who's not in their class level at war with one another, right? To keep them in their place. That you can have a space to be able to open that discussion, to to entertain uh, uh, new ideas, you know, to put different perspectives out there that don't have to necessarily prescribe to some sort of preconceived notion or idea of that. I want to make sure that that is something um, that is constantly in place uh, in my little corner, uh, you know, of the internet and everybody in corner of the internet. I want to be able to make sure to do that. So, you know, that's one of the things I say. And I even even if even if a people color platform shares a social or political perspective, I don't particularly agree with. I don't. That, that doesn't make me mad. I don't. I think they should. I want them. To, I want them to be there, and I want them to really be able to, you know, build a community you know, with the people that, you know, that, that want to be a part of that community and that they, they deserve and they, and they have the right and the freedom now with the internet to have a space out there and F everybody else and do that. So that's, that's kind of like, that's, that's what I'm, that's where my, my head goes uh, as we're coming. Well, yeah, I think it's, um, it's all, it's kind of a constant battle right mm -hmm. between the elite class and everybody else mm -hmm. is that the elite class is always going to want to try to suppress that because they want to control the narrative so you know for like the smaller um platforms to exist it's going to be a constant battle and you're that like that's just going to be the way it is yeah yeah uh, but i'm happy to watch them kill themselves too and kill each other Oh yeah, um, you know, and I that 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 I think that's really what's clearing space for us now is it's it's not that necessarily we fought so hard and and we came. I think we're being opportunistic in a way. I think people need to be opportunistic. You know, well, we're we're not all here to we wouldn't be able to exist. Right, you know, um, and and I think that the um, a lot of these a lot of these things are about inherent contradictions that 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 they fail that they fail to. Um, resolve, you know, and, and they will always end up, you know, I think that there are, is always going to be a degree of like infighting. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the landscape, what, what's the phrase, uh, the Mao phrase, uh, all under heaven is in chaos. The situation is excellent. You know, I, I, I feel like that's how I feel. I, I feel like there's so much chaos out there now that people who can keep their shit together and see a path through it, um, there's a lot of opportunity. Um, it just might not be profitable, but profit may not be the future. You know what I mean? Um, profit may not matter in the future. And, and so though people I think who can keep their eyes, you know, on the situation and think about people and not money uh, are going are going to see the terrain much more clearly, you know, and um, and and be able to offer uh, a way a way through a way to a way through maybe or a way a way of a some way sort. Yeah, way forward. Yeah, uh, in what seems like a hopeless situation. Um. And I think we've got to reframe. I, I, you know, I think the second we start talking about new media ventures and all this stuff, I think we pigeonhole ourselves into ideas that are on their way out, and we are not grasping, you know, the terrain in front of us, which is so different now. And uh, you know, for 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 eccentric thinkers, let's say, 
what a great opportunity. I mean, I wouldn't want to live in another situation like the 90s where all the institutions seem to be absolutely rock solid. We're never going to go away. We didn't know that within the matter of 20 years, they'd, they'd be deceased, you know, um, and, and, uh, and that process is only accelerating. It's unbelievable. And we have to, uh, and, we have to, and it's incredibly anxiety inducing for people that, mm-hmm. that are holding fast to old ideas. Yeah, and we have to thank, and we also have to thank those people for never, for never evolving. <laughs> that's true. That's true. You, gotta, you gotta thank them for ne- for taking a stand, dying on their hill, and then dying. dying. Right? You know, for never evolving, right? You have to. I, I look at. I look at it. It's like that whole. It's like. The, it's like the Napster thing. Instead of the music industry suing them, they should have figured out what is he doing. How can we do it? And then, and then they just pretty much died. How, how can we do Napster better? Napster, Napster better now. Instead of doing it, they just wanted to yeah. sue him and, and, and put him in jail so they could get him out the way so they could keep doing what they're doing. And eventually, yeah. they still lost. Right. 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 Well, they're learning. I mean, they're trying to ban TikTok and uh, get an Instagram TikTok. So, in a way, yeah, they're, they're I mean, kind of learning. I, I, I think that for us to pay too much attention to the specifics mm-hmm, of the, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm I'm happy just to know that they're all mm-hmm. fighting each other. Mm-hmm, yep, and they're yep, all yep. creating a shit show yep. of litigation mm-hmm. and congressional hearings and an endless series of just fucking shit show. And uh, and their site, their websites are shit shows, and their products are shit shows, and their ki- the news that they put out is shit show. Everything's a shit show. It sucks. It's terrible. Everyone knows it, and the situation is fantastic. <laughs> you know, like if you are an opportunistic, weird motherfucker, it's a great fucking time. You know, um, so and I see people take. I see people doing it. It, it's not like we're the only ones doing this shit. There's so many people out there that are doing this shit and we're finding, uh, you know, we're finding mutuals. We're finding like people took the template. We, we took a template that was existing to some extent and ran with it and created our model. And I think others have looked at us and said, Oh shit, plan A did it. We could do it. Uh, you know, and uh, there's, there's probably a ton of other models that'll work. And, uh, just jump in. Shit, it's fun anyway. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd rather be doing it than not be doing it. I think it's not just a network for community building. I mean, it is that, but it can also be a network, a community that eventually organizes and grows into movements, like whatever, whatever they may be. And I think that's yeah. what event. That's what uh, the least are actually afraid of of, of that happening. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, I think, Diana, we got to be very clear now. And I think we've been pretty good about this, right? Like trying to be very clear about what it is we really stand for, because the shape of what we take on now, to the extent that anything in the future nucleates around it, can be very hard to change in the future. Mm -hmm. You know, so like you've got to we've got to be very clear now about what it is that we think we stand for. Um, But the key is that we're thinking about it now rather than taking that sort of like passive media platform approach where it's like, Oh yeah, we just stand for the proposition that, you know, you should have the right to say what you want to say. And it's like, well, what does that mean? It means that we feel like you can be authentic here. Well, what the fuck does that mean? You know, we respect we respect the individual, you know. Uh so so that's been good. I think we've actually spent a lot of time thinking about that. Yeah, and, we've been um, kind of refining our positions, you know, just in in creating the media and creating the platform we kind of uh 
discuss and um, understand ourselves and what we believe a lot more as people. And I think that's, that's progress. And that's really, really interesting and novel that it, and it it's should more static, you know, as a platform we've been. Yeah. And it will, well. I think, yeah. And I think it will beat out the model that says that, Oh, well, we really are our investors. And mm-hmm. what do the investors want? Well, we want to return on our investment. I mean, that's that in terms of like communications and media or whatever, that has got to die. That that idea has got to fucking die. And you see it. Like you see Facebook contracting and dying to the extent that it went public and suddenly come an investor-driven uh, firm. And their, their offering sucks. And the platform sucks because they have become uh, investor-driven. You know, and and to some extent, Twitter never gave as much a shit about making profits, and they never, as far as I know, make profits. And they're slightly better, <laughs> but now they're under pressure to turn profits over because they too are a public company, and they're starting to become shit as well. And uh, you know, I think that the yeah, Diana, I just think the whole notion of the investor. Uh, the passive investor who sees this as a as a venture, it, it's, it's just got to go. I think it is going to go. And I think the notion of people who are putting together platforms where they're like, wait, what do we stand for? What are we trying to say? Uh, it seems the idea that that's like revolutionary <laughs> is kind of sad because I think why else would you go into this? You know what I mean? And like, so many of the venerable platforms that you see were built around this idea. They've become corrupted over the years. But The Atlantic, for example, started out as an abolitionist magazine. That's what they stood for. Mm-hmm. Right? Like yeah. these things were created for a proposition. Uh, I think we're, we're definitely getting back to that. Yeah. And I mean, so. a lot of the Asian American publications did also start out as more um, – uh, out there or like radical um, publications and then you slowly they uh, you know get different kinds of funding and well I guess another thing is a lot of the radical ideas they were pushing for you know in the 60s or 70s became mainstream so then they just kind of either petered out or became just like very milk toast because well all they got what they asked for, you know, they got what they wanted. Mm. So now they're yeah. kind of irrelevant. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's also necessary for there to be, um, you know, like different generations just coming out with new publications and new media when it's necessary, because you can't just say, Oh, this, you know, Asian, magazine that's been out here since the 80s they represent us we're done because it's asian owned like like you need the new voices and the new ideas to um to just define what needs to be said for the next generation And, and how do you measure success right because in a way it's like if we measured success by like how much money we bring in or, or how much we grow our audience, I mean, we probably should have packed it up a while ago because I think we've kind of plateaued. We found sort of a nat- 
natural size for our audience. I don't think we're, we've, we grew and then we got to a certain point and I think it's kind of stable now. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't actually think we know our size. Uh, uh, I think we're actually Diana. I think we're bigger than we think, but uh, I don't <laughs> think we're growing. Jesus. As, yes. <laughs> uh, well, he was small, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't think we've grown um, much. I think we're growing slow, very slowly, but, I don't care. Like, I think that much more important to the success of a of a project like this is the degree to which people who contributed to it are motivated and interested. Because I don't care how fast you're growing. If the people are who are doing the articles and maintaining the website and recording the pods, if they lose interest, it's over. You know what I mean? And you see a lot of successful uh companies and ventures fall apart, even though they have uh, good reach and, and even revenue because the founders leave or the the employees leave in mass. And that's a kind of death too. And so I think with like plan A, for example, like all I've ever really cared about is are the people who are actually contributing to plan A, do they still give a shit about it? Uh, is it something that still holds our interest, our own collective interest as the, as the creators of it? And if you don't have that interest, then I think it's over. I don't really give a shit about how, how many people tune in to the pod or, or, or read the articles, though it is nice to see that there is actually an audience for it. But I think that that's the other thing is like, how do you measure success? I measure it in terms of the people who are uh, contributing to it and creating it, not so much uh, the people who are quote consuming it, you know what I mean? Well, like they're just going to be there. I disagree with not. that a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. I mostly agree, but I also care about our reach in the sense that I want to radicalize as many people as possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean, I do. Well, I guess, I guess, I'm saying, Diana, I care about it in the sense that I think that that will just naturally follow a well done project. Yeah, you know what I mean, like. But 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 you can't. It's almost like you 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 can achieve that. It's it's like you got to be a little bit like the force about it. Like you uh-huh. can't directly intend to do that in a way. Like if we can radicalize ourselves, right? <laughs> you know, and people will come to gawk at the process. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, no, I agree. It's not like I don't care at all, but I think. Um, that it, it it is it has to be of secondary importance in mm-hmm. order to be achieved in a weird way. If it's the primary thing, you won't achieve it. Is my right. sort of zeny zeny take? Yeah, on it, I think we should end it here. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Sorry, I, I I took us on tangents. No, I think um, it was good. I think it was a good discussion. Okay. Um. Yeah. Let's end it here. Um, right. Dave, thanks for the input, man. Hope. Uh, yeah. Hope it was the discussion you were looking yes, for. Yes, it was. It was good. <laughs> awesome. Okay, we got uh, a f- affirmation from David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do the end of it. You can do the end of the, end of the show. Yeah, this was, this was good. This was, very, this was a very good discussion. Yeah. Yeah, it- awesome. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening. You have heard another episode of Escape from Plan A. If you like what you heard, please rate us 
and follow us on SoundCloud, Google, Spotify, everywhere there's podcasts, and consider donating to our Patreon. Have a great night. All right. See ya. See ya.